Welcome to Dark Gate Horror Podcast, episode number 23, in which I'll be discussing Friday the 13th. Summer's a great time for going camping, and this film changed the perception of camp such that Jaws did for the beach. I loved watching these films as a kid at sleepovers. Of course, I was always the only one who could watch them all the way to the end. I'll discuss several films in detail in this episode, so this is a spoiler alert. But first, some news. Warner Brothers has slated Richard Kelly's The Box for release on March 20, 2009. Based on the short story by Richard Matheson, The Box stars Cameron Diaz as Norma Lewis and James Marsden as Arthur Lewis, a suburban couple with a young child who receives a simple wooden box as a gift. It bears fatal and irrevocable consequences. A mysterious stranger, played by Frank Langella, delivers the message with the box premises to bestow upon the owner $1 million with the press of a button. But pressing the button will simultaneously cause the death of another human being somewhere in the world, someone they don't know. With just 24 hours to have the box in their possession, Norma and Arthur find themselves in the crosshairs of a startling moral dilemma and must face the true nature of their humanity. In an article regarding the happening, which released Friday, June 13th, BloodyDisgusting.com reports, As the ads have made sure to inform you, this is the first R-rated film from the director. But how R-rated is it going to be? Knight explains that it was always planned as an R-rated feature. He says, I didn't even ask what would be involved with the happening in order to bring down a PG-13, because I assumed we were way past the line. However... Don't expect a non-stop bloodbath because it's mainly for how shocking the images are that you see. He also admits that doing a harder film was disturbingly easy and fun for him, and it will be open to doing another R-rated film again. Although not anytime soon, his next film, due in 2010, is a kid's movie based on the Avatar animated series. He says, My calling is definitely on the gruesome side. Watch for the full interview with Knight on bloodydisgusting.com next week, where he will discuss more on The Happening, The Chances of Unbreakable 2, and Stuart Little. I'll discuss The Happening in greater detail in the next podcast in case you have not been able to see it yet. Let's have a short discussion of The Strangers. The Strangers opened May 30th, 2008, and I had the opportunity to see it opening weekend at the Universal City Walk AMC, a theater I like, but have not been to in a long time. I was excited to see the film, yet a bit apprehensive because the film had been shelved once and the ending had been reworked. Although a lot of people were disappointed, I was absolutely not. I did not see any advertising that it was, quote, based on a true story, or I would have given you a heads up last time when I covered the topic a couple months ago. The premise was interesting to me, that some strangers break into your house and you become a target for a group of sadistic people. Sounds like good times, right? Although it retread a lot of ground from past films, it did something that many horror films gloss over. It spends time to set up the relationship of the couple and gives you a chance to get to know them before the strangers arrive. It is one of those films that you should probably see in the theater with crowd reactions and jumping out of your seat. It was nice to see some good acting. Liv Tyler was top-notch. I even found it somewhat scary, and I'm usually far too jaded to be scared in a film. The scary part of this film was not the gore or violence. It is most certainly the old-school Hitchcock suspense, which builds up very effectively. And although decades of horror films, including our own main topic films today, have used the concept, killers and masks are scary. I found the ending a bit weak, which makes me wonder what the original ending was, but otherwise a very enjoyable film. 
It brought in a lot more revenue than originally predicted, which I thought was fantastic. It proves that a studio can take a chance on an original R-rated film, and it can be bankable. One of the best horror films I have seen in the last couple years, although it will not have the staying power of films of the same vein, such as Suspiria, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and the like, the film was clearly influenced, at least in part, by the 1972 film Last House on the Left, Wes Craven's first film, and I'll discuss it on a future podcast. But I'd like to share an article called Small is Scary, The Master of Fright Reveals Why Big Studios Rarely Deliver Horror Movie Magic by Stephen King from Entertainment Weekly, July 11, 2008. For those of you who do not read Entertainment Weekly, King writes a column once per month, I think. It's not always about horror, but this article addresses issues which we have been discussing lately. It's the article I would have asked King to write if I'd had the opportunity. King has always been and continues to be my favorite horror writer and is a personal hero of mine as a writer. This article discusses why horror films today just don't have the same impact. It discusses The Strangers, The Happening, which I will discuss next episode, and the upcoming X-Files film. First, King muses on what makes a film scary. He says that most really good horror films are low-budget affairs with special effects cooked up in someone's basement or garage. Among those that are truly work, are Carnival of Souls, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Night of the Living Dead, and The Blair Witch Project. All cost almost nothing to make and earned millions, while their sequels and remakes were crap. Dawn of the Dead in both its incarnations being the exception to the rule. I think King hit the nail on the head. The films he listed work because they are not flashy, with lots of special effects designed to make lots of money in packed theaters. He says, Horror is an intimate experience, something that occurs mostly within oneself. And when it works, the screams of a sold-out house are almost intrusive. In that sense, a movie such as Blair Witch Project is more like poetry than the event films that pack the plexus in summer, King states. Personally, I have a love-hate relationship with seeing horror in the theater. When a film succeeds, as King says, the crowd response is phenomenal. Such was the case of Final Destination, with the crowd cheering, especially in the case of Blair Witch Project, however, when the crowd was on the edge of their seats, myself included, holding our collective breaths completely silent until the end, which was perfect. On the other hand, a bad or wrong crowd can kill the experience, no pun intended. (laughs) Such was the case when I went to see The Strangers and The Happening. Los Angeles is a strange place to watch films in a lot of ways, but I won't go into my rant there. I miss my theater in San Diego. Some horror I prefer to watch alone, depending on the film. King says it best. Horror is not a spectacle, and never will be. Horror is an unknown actress, perhaps the girl next door, cowering in a cabin with a knife in her hands we know she will never be able to use. Horror is the scene in The Strangers where Liv Tyler tries to fit under the bed and discovers she can't fit there. His last point is one I think is the key point to understanding modern horror. At the Fangoria Horror Convention I attended, George Romero said that he wanted to leave the cause of the zombies without an explanation and that studios want explanation. King argues that big movies demand big expectations, which are usually tiresome, and big backstories, which are usually cumbersome. He continues saying that studios feel the need to shove what it all means down the audience's throat. Further states, but nightmares exist outside of logic, and there's little fun to be had in explanations. They're antithetical to the poetry of fear. Such as in the case of Liv Tyler's character asking her attackers, why are you doing this to us? And the response is, because you are home. King says that, in the end, 
That's all the explanation a good horror film needs. To me, this is horror at its finest and most pure state, the fear of the unknown. And this fear is what is going to make this film both appealing and appalling to mainstream filmgoers. Random violence is a true fear for many people. And as the world becomes scarier, the more people fear the unknown. In my opinion, in essence, people are so torn over whether they hate or like this film has everything to do with the fact that this film cuts to the most basic human need, the need for safety. People will feel like they're violated, and many left the theater uneasy and unhappy about the ending. People like to have answers, and they like to make meaning out of their encounters with the world. This film offers no answers. To me, this is a slick, relatively flawless film, beautifully shot, that does everything it can to scare you to no ends, then push you out of the dark theater without a consoling or supporting hug. So, I want to share a little bit of listener feedback. I have received a lot of emails lately and want to share a couple comments that you've been providing regarding the status of horror films today. Thank you to everyone who sends emails. I love getting comments and I love to hear what you think. I apologize if I cannot respond to all emails. I do read each and every one of them. The first one is from Rucked, and I do apologize if I have your name wrong. The email states, I have to somewhat disagree with you on the point you made that horror films seem to be stuck in remake mode right now. It seems to me that most Hollywood is stuck in remake mode. The tendency to fall back upon remakes of older films is not limited to horror films. I think this is due to the rising cost of movies. As movies are more and more expensive to make, films represent a greater risk to the studios who financially back them. The result is that often studios look to remakes because these movies can be seen as guaranteed moneymakers. With so much at stake financially, many film companies choose to aim for movies they can bank on, rather than something unknown which may do well or poorly. In any case, I will fully agree that this disease has certainly did horror films as well. So, I would stand beside your statement that we need to try to support more independent horror films. The signal comes to mind. It's a noble effort for an independent movie. However, I think there is a great number of newer horror films awaiting the ardent fan if you know where to look. I just watched The Orphanage, which was produced by Guillermo del Toro. It's a phenomenal horror film, and I highly recommend it. I'll be discussing The Orphanage on the next podcast. Yes, there are a lot of horror films that fly just under the radar, or well under it in the case of a lot of international horror. And some are great, and some are not so great, just like horror made in the U.S. I tend to watch a lot of mainstream stuff, but I seek out the indie stuff and the not-so-well-known films when one sparks my attention. I've not seen The Signal yet, although the concept is not original, but since I have it at home right now from Netflix, I'll check it out and let you all know. The second email comes from Jeffrey. He says... My biggest problem with the horror movies of now do not have the same impact of horror movies of the past. I remember watching horror movies when I was younger and being too scared to sleep. There are no original ideas. In the past few years, it's either been a remake or a different version of a movie from the past. There was a movie that was being made called Sinjin Smith. It looked like it may have had promise, but I hear it was shut down. Friday the 13th is being remade. Texas Chainsaw Massacre was remade. Granted, it was gory, whereas the original wasn't. But I was just not scared. Maybe I've become desensitized. Jeffrey, I feel exactly the same way. So let's move on to our main topic of Friday the 13th. But first, I'm going to give you some background on Friday the 13th and why it is considered unlucky. The articles by David Emery can be found at urbanlegends.about.com. Although most of us probably affirm that superstition's role in Western culture is now a much diminished one, 
more a source of amusement than anything else, there are still those who allow their trepidation over particular dates or days to prevent them from engaging in their choice of activities. We make jokes about Friday the 13th and only kiddingly instruct loved ones to exercise greater care on that day. But those who suffer from a fear of the number 13 or a fear of Friday the 13th may genuinely feel limited by the rumored potential for ill luck connected with that date. In a 1993 study published in the British Medical Journal, provocatively titled, Is Friday the 13th Bad for Your Health?, with the aim of mapping the relation between health, behavior, and superstition surrounding Friday the 13th in the United Kingdom, its authors compared the ratio of traffic volume to the number of automobile accidents on two different days, Friday the 6th and Friday the 13th, over a period of years. Incredibly, they found that in the region sampled... While consistently fewer people chose to drive their cars on Friday the 13th, the number of hospital admissions due to vehicular accidents was significantly higher than on normal Fridays. Their conclusion, Friday the 13th is unlucky for some. The risk of hospital admission is a result of a transport accident may be increased by as much as 52%. Staying home is recommended. People afflicted with a morbid, irrational fear of Friday the 13th must be pricking up their ears just now, due to the seeming evidence that their terror may not be so irrational after all. But it's unwise to take solace in a single scientific study, especially one so peculiar. I suspect these statistics have more to teach us about human psychology than the ill-fatedness of any particular date on the calendar. Friday the 13th, is it the most widespread superstition? The sixth day of the week and the number 13 both have foreboding reputations said to date from ancient times, and their inevitable conjunction from one to three times a year portends more misfortune than some credulous minds can bear. Some sources say it may be the most widespread superstition in the United States. Some people won't go to work on Friday the 13th, won't eat in restaurants, wouldn't think of setting a wedding on that date. Just how many Americans at the turn of the millennium still suffer from this condition? According to Dr. Donald Dossey, a psychotherapist specializing in the treatment of phobias, the figure may be as high as 21 million. If he's right, 8% of Americans are still in the grips of a very old superstition. Exactly how old is difficult to say, because determining the origins of superstitions is an inexact science at best. In fact, it's mostly guesswork. 13 is known as the devil's dozen. It is said, if 13 people sit down together at dinner, all will die within the year. The Turks so disliked the number 13 that it was practically expunged from the vocabulary. Many cities do not have a 13th street or a 13th avenue. Many buildings don't have a 13th floor. If you have 13 letters to your name, you will have the devil's luck. Such as Jack the Ripper, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Theodore Bundy, and Albert DeSalvo all have 13 letters in their names. There are 13 witches in a coven. Although no one can say for sure when and why human beings first associated the number 13 with misfortune, the belief is assumed to be quite old. And there exist any number of theories, all of which have been called into question at one time or another. I should point out, purporting to trace its origins to antiquity and beyond. It has been proposed, for example, that fears surrounding the number 13 are as ancient as the act of counting. Primitive man had only 10 fingers and 2 feet to represent units. This explanation goes, so he could count no higher than 12. What lay beyond that, 13, 
was an impenetrable mystery to our prehistoric forebears, hence an object of superstition, which has an edifying ring to it, but one is left wondering, did primitive man not have toes? Despite whatever terrors the numerical unknown held for our hunter-and-gather ancestors, ancient civilizations weren't anonymous in their dread of 13. The Chinese regarded the number as lucky. Some commentators note as the Egyptians in the time of the pharaohs did. To the ancient Egyptians, these sources tell us life was a quest for spiritual ascension, which unfolded in stages, 12 in this life and the 13th beyond, thought to be eternal afterlife. The number 13, therefore, symbolized death, not in terms beyond, though, of dust and decay, but as a glorious and desirable transformation. Though Egyptian civilization perished, the symbolism conferred by the number 13 by its priesthood survived only to be corrupted by subsequent cultures who came to associate 13 with a fear of death instead of the reverence for the afterlife. Other sources speculate that the number 13 may have been purposely vilified by the founders of patriarchal religions in the early days of Western civilization because it represented femininity. Thirteen had been revered in prehistoric goddess-worshipping cultures, we are told, because it corresponded to the number of lunar cycles in a year. Thirteen times twenty-eight equals 364 days. The Earth Mother of Lossal, for example, a 27,000-year-old carving found near the Lascaux Caves in France, most cited as an icon of matriarchal spirituality, depicts a female figure holding a crescent-shaped horn bearing thirteen notches. As the solar calendar triumphed over the lunar with the rise of male-dominated civilization, it is surmised, so did the number 12 over the number 13, therefore considered anathema. On the other hand, one of the earliest concrete taboos associated with the number 13, a taboo that still is observed by some superstitious folks today, evidently, is said to have originated in the East with the Hindus, who believed, for reasons I haven't yet been able to ascertain, that it is always unlucky for 13 people to gather in one place, say at a dinner. Interestingly enough, precisely the same superstition has been attributed to the ancient Vikings. The story has been laid down as follows. Loki, the evil one. Twelve gods were invited to a banquet at Valhalla. Loki, the evil one, god of mischief, had been left off the guest list but crashed the party, bringing the total number of attendees to 13. True to character... Loki raised hell by inciting Hod, the blind god of winter, to attack Baldur the Good, who was a favorite of the gods. Hod took a spear of mistletoe offered by Loki and obediently hurled it at Baldur, killing him instantly. All of Valhalla grieved, and although one might take the moral of this story to be beware of uninvited guests bearing mistletoe, the Norse themselves apparently concluded that 13 people at a dinner party is just plain bad luck. As if to prove the point, the Bible tells us there were exactly 13 present at the Last Supper. One of the dinner guests, or disciples, betrayed Jesus Christ, setting the stage for the crucifixion. Did I mention the crucifixion took place on a Friday? It is said, never change your bed on a Friday will bring bad dreams. Don't start a trip on a Friday or you will have misfortune. If you cut your nails on Friday, you cut them for sorrow. Ships that set sail on a Friday will have bad luck as in the tale of the HMS Friday. One hundred years ago, the British government sought to quell once and for all the widespread superstition among seamen that setting sail on Fridays was unlucky. A special ship was commissioned named HMS Friday. They laid her keel on a Friday, launched her on a Friday, selected her crew on a Friday, and hired a man named Jim Friday to be her captain. 
To top it off, HMS Friday embarked on her maiden voyage on a Friday and was never seen or heard from again. The name Friday was derived from a Norse deity worshipped on the sixth day, known either as Frigg, goddess of marriage and fertility, or Freya, goddess of sex and fertility, or both, the two figures having been intertwined in the handing down of myths over time. The etymology of Friday has been given both ways. Frigg slash Freya corresponds to Venus, the goddess of love of the Romans, who named the sixth day of the week in her honor, Dies Veneris. Friday was actually considered quite lucky by pre-Christian Teutonic peoples, we are told, especially as a day to get married, because of its traditional association with love and fertility. All that changed when Christianity came along. The goddess of the sixth day, most like Freya in this context, given that the cat was her sacred animal, and recast in post-pagan folklore as a witch, and her day became associated with evil doings. Various legends developed in that vein, but one is in particular interest. As the story goes, the witches of the north used to observe the Sabbath by gathering in a cemetery in the dark of the moon. On one such occasion, the Friday goddess, Freya herself, came down from her sanctuary in the mountaintops and appeared before the group, who numbered only twelve at the time, and gave them one of her cats. After which, the witches' coven, and by tradition, every properly formed coven sense, comprised exactly thirteen. The astute listener will have observed that while we have thus far insinuated any number of intriguing connections between events, practices, and beliefs attributed to ancient cultures and the superstitious fear of Fridays, and the number 13, we have yet to happen upon an explanation of how, why, or when these separate strands of folklore converged, if that is indeed what happened, to mark Friday the 13th as the unluckiest day of all. There's a very simple reason for that. Nobody knows although various explanations have been proposed. The Knights Templar is one theory, recently offered up as historical fact in the novel The Da Vinci Code, holds that it came about not as the result of a convergence, but a catastrophe, a single historical event that happened nearly 700 years ago. The catastrophe was the decimation of the Knights Templar, the legendary order of warrior monks, formed during the Christian Crusades to combat Islam. Renowned by a fighting force for 200 years, by the 1300s, the order had grown so pervasive and powerful, it was perceived as a political threat by knights and popes alike, and brought down by a church-state conspiracy, as recounted by Catherine Kurtz in Tales of the Knights Templar. On October 13, 1307, a day so infamous that Friday the 13th would become a synonym for ill fortune, officers of King Philip IV of France carried out mass arrests in a well-coordinated dawn raid that left several thousand Templars, knights, sergeants, priests, and serving brethren in chains, charged with hearsay, blasphemy, various obscenities, and homosexual practices. None of these charges was ever proven, even in France, and the order was found innocent elsewhere. But in the seven years following the arrests, hundreds of Templars suffered excruciating tortures intended to force confessions, and more than a hundred died under torture or were executed by burning at the stake. There are drawbacks to the day-so infamous thesis, not the least of which is that it attributes enormous cultural significance to a relatively obscure historical event. Even more problematic, for this or any other theory posting pre-modern origins for Friday the 13th superstitions, is the fact that no one has been able to document the existence of such beliefs prior to the 19th century. If people who lived before the 1800s perceived Friday the 13th as a day of special misfortune, 
No evidence has been found to prove it. As a result, some scholars are now convinced the stigma is a thoroughly modern phenomenon exacerbated by 20th century media hype. Going back 100 years, Friday the 13th doesn't even merit a mention in E. Cobham Brewer's voluminous 1898 edition of the Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, though it does have one entry for Friday, an unlucky day, and 13 unlucky. When the date of ill fate finally does make an appearance in later editions of the text, it is without extravagant claims as to the superstition's histrosity or longevity. The very brevity of the entry is instructive. A particularly unlucky Friday. C-13. Implying that the extra dollop of misfortune attributed to Friday the 13th can be accounted for in terms of an accrual, so to speak, of bad omens. Unlucky Friday plus unlucky 13 equals unluckier Friday. If that's the case, we are guilty of perpetuating a misnomer by labeling Friday the 13th as the unluckiest day of all, a designation perhaps better reserved for, say, a Friday the 13th in which one breaks a mirror, walks under a ladder, spills the salt, and spies a black cat crossing one's path. A day, if there ever was one, best spent in the safety of one's own home with doors locked, shutters closed, and fingers crossed. Yahoo News reported on Thursday, June 12, 2008 this year, Friday the 13th, not more unlucky, study shows. From Amsterdam, Reuters. Unlucky for some? Dutch statisticians have established that Friday the 13th, a date regarded in many countries as inauspicious, is actually safer than the average Friday. A study published on Thursday by the Dutch Center for Insurance Statistics, the CVS, showed that fewer accidents and reports of fire and theft occurred on the 13th of the month when it falls on a Friday than on other Fridays. I find it hard to believe that it is because people are preventively more careful or just stay home. But statistically speaking, driving is a little bit safer on Friday the 13th. CVS statistician Alex Hone told the Wizzacred Insurance magazine. In the last two years, Dutch insurers receive reports of an average 7,800 traffic accidents each Friday, the CVS study said. But the average figure when the 13th fell on a Friday was just 7,500. There were also fewer incidences of fire and theft, although the average value of losses on Friday the 13th was slightly higher. The link for both of these articles will be in the show note. So here's the part you were waiting for. Friday the 13th, the film. This film was intended to be a real scary movie, and at the same time make the audience laugh. Friday the 13th began its life as nothing more than a title. In an interview with Scott S. Cunningham, he says, So, as you often do, you sit down trying to figure out titles. Out of frustration, at one point, I wrote down my list of titles, Friday the 13th. I said, if I could call this film Friday the 13th, I could sell that. And I just let it go, but it kept coming back to me. Then I started thinking of a television spot where just the title comes on from infinity to the center of the screen, and as it hits the screen, it shatters like a mirror, and a voice-off would say, Friday the 13th, the most terrifying film ever made. Something like that. I thought it was great. I ended up going to a graphic artist still in Connecticut, and I had him do a full-page ad in Variety that said, From the producer of Last House on the left comes the most terrifying film ever made, Friday the 13th. The title was Breaking Glass. I ran the ad in the July 4th issue of Variety to see what would happen. Well, the phone started ringing off the hook. Everybody wanted this movie, which didn't exist. 
So I called Victor Miller. He came over and we sat around the kitchen table and I asked him, do you ever write a horror film? He said, no. And I said, let's try to figure it out because it looks like we're going to have to make this movie somehow. And we started asking ourselves what would be really scary. And slowly the story came together. It's from an article at Friday the 13th films.com. So now you know where the unluckiness and the superstitions from Friday the 13th came and where the name of the film came. But let's talk about the film itself. Friday the 13th is a 1980 independent slasher film. Although the film was poorly received by most, if not all, mainstream film critics, it went on to become one of the most popular slasher films in cinema history and was the first movie of its kind to secure distribution by a major studio, Paramount Pictures. The film's box office success led to a long series of sequels. Friday the 13th was produced by Sean S. Cunningham, who had previously worked with filmmaker Wes Craven on the film Last House on the Left. Cunningham was inspired by the success of John Carpenter's influential Halloween and can see Friday the 13th as an exploitation film that would cash in on the success of Halloween. Ironically, Friday the 13th became a huge box office hit, caused even more slasher films to be made, and spawned a seemingly unending franchise of sequels. The script was written by Victor Miller, who has gone on to write for several television soap operas. Miller delighted in inventing a serial killer who turned out to be somebody's mother, a murderer whose only motivation was the love of her child. I took motherhood and turned it on its head, and I think that was great fun. Mrs. Voorhees was the mother I'd always wanted, a mother who would have killed for her kids. Miller was unhappy about the filmmaker's decision to add Jason Voorhees to the film, making him leap out of the lake at the end to grab the heroine. Jason was dead from the very beginning. He was a victim, not a villain. The idea of Jason appearing at the end of the film was not in the original script and was actually suggested by makeup designer Tom Savini. Savini said, The whole reason for the cliffhanger at the end was I had just seen Carrie, so we thought we needed a chair jumper like that, and I said, Let's bring in Jason. I'm sure most of you have seen the film, but let's do a brief plot outline. In a brief prologue set in 1958, two summer camp counselors at Camp Crystal Lake sneak away from a campfire sing-along to be intimate. However, an unseen assailant sneaks into their room and murders them both. The film moves forward to 1980. A young woman named Annie enters a small diner and asks for directions to Camp Crystal Lake, much to the shock of the restaurant's patrons and staff. A strange old man named Ralph reacts to the news of the camp's reopening by giving Annie a warning that they are all doomed. Enos, a truck driver from the diner, agrees to give Annie a lift halfway to the camp. During the drive, he warns her about the camp, informing her that a young boy drowned in Crystal Lake in 1957, one year before the double murders occurred. After Enos lets her out, Annie hitches another ride in a jeep. The second driver whose face is never seen, ends up murdering Annie by slashing her throat with a large hunting knife. At the camp, the other counselors, Ned, Jack, played by Kevin Bacon in an early role, Bill, Marcy, Alice, and Brenda are refurbishing the cabins and facilities along with the camp's owner, Steve Christie. As a violent storm closes in on the horizon, Steve leaves the campground to get more supplies. The unidentified killer starts to isolate and murder the counselors. Later that evening, Steve returns from town and is also murdered, apparently familiar with his attacker. Alice informs Bill that she saw the lights on at the archery range and she thinks she heard Brenda screaming. Bill and Alice leave the cabin to investigate and find a bloody axe in Brenda's bed. Attempting to phone the police, they discover the phones are dead and the cars won't start when they try to leave, 
When the lights go out all over the camp, Bill goes to check on the power generator, and Alice heads out looking for Bill when he doesn't return and finds his body pinned to a door by several arrows. Now alone, Alice flees back to the main cabin and hides. After a few moments of silence, Brenda's corpse is hurled through the window. Alice hears a vehicle outside the cabin and, thinking it to be Steve, runs out to warn him. Instead, she finds a middle-aged woman who introduces herself as Mrs. Voorhees, an old friend of the Christie's. Alice hysterically tries to tell her about the murders. Mrs. Voorhees expresses horror at the sight of Brenda's body, but she soon reveals herself to be the mother of the boy who drowned in the lake in 1957. Talking mostly about herself, she blames Jason's drowning on the fact that two counselors were having sex and were unaware of Jason struggling in the lake. Mrs. Voorhees suddenly turns violent and pulls out a large knife, rushing at Alice. A lengthy chase ensues, during which Alice flees her attacker and finds Steve and Anne's bodies in the process. Alice and Mrs. Voorhees have several confrontations, each time with Alice believing she has finally beaten Mrs. Voorhees. During their final fight, Alice manages to decapitate Mrs. Voorhees with her own machete. Afterwards, the decomposing corpse of Pamela's son, Jason, attacks Alice while she waits for help in a canoe. Just as she is pulled under the water, she wakes up in a hospital, where a police officer informs her they pulled her out of the water. When she asks about Jason, the officer informs her they found no boy. Some notes and trivia. The film's original working title was A Long Night at Camp Blood. The film came in at number three on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments. The film Scream, which we discussed in another episode, had a scene where Drew Barrymore's character was being stalked by a killer in a cat-and-mouse game. The killer asks her, who was the killer in Friday the 13th? To which she replies, Jason. The killer responds, wrong answer. Mrs. Voorhees was the original killer. Jason didn't show up till the sequel. And it currently has a rating of 76% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is very good for a horror film. So, the sequels. Part 2 was the first time Jason kills. The film begins with the only survivor from the last movie, Alice, played again by Adrian King, being slain by a mysterious prowler two months after the conclusion of the original film. The premise of this film is that it's five years later. A group of young adults have come to Crystal Lake to attend a counselor training center that's been set up near the now-condemned Camp Crystal Lake. Townspeople claim that Jason is still there, viciously protecting the area around Crystal Lake. The mask that Jason wears in this film is based on the Zodiac Killer's mask during his Lake Berryessa attack in 1969. The film was released in April 1981, and it's currently sitting at 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, I just rewatched this film a few weeks ago, and I have to say, it is one of the better ones. But it makes me giddy with the reworking that will be released next year. I hope it does for Friday the 13th series what Batman Begins did for the Batman franchise. Yes, I have high hopes. As far as the sequels, Part 3, 1982, 4, 1984, and 5 in 1985 were, well, let's put it this way, terrible. Part 6, Jason Lives, from 1986, however, managed to retain some of what was great about the original. In fact, this film even provided some parody of the slasher genre and even itself. It's been called the most enjoyable of the series, and Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 53%. Parts 7 from 1988 and 8 from 1989 were the worst of the series, particularly Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, at least in my opinion. It's laughable. Some say Part 4 was really the worst of the series, but I believe it's Part 8. 
And then in 1993, Jason Goes to Hell, the final Friday, was released. Again, it did not do well, but was much better than the prior two. Then there's a gap until 2002, when Jason X was released. Let me be honest on this one. I've been a fan of these films for two decades now. I even watched the bad ones. I love slasher films. I'm amused at different ways people get whacked. The point of a slasher film is to see people get killed, gore, blood, and volumes. But I just could not sit more than a half an hour through Jason X. It takes a lot for me to turn off a film. In this film, a favorite of many people because it's recent, I suppose, the synopsis is that a team of government scientists working at Crystal Lake Research Facility have finally captured the notorious Jason. In order to at least contain Jason, the plan is to freeze him in cryogenic suspension. But, as usual, things go horribly wrong, and he breaks free to resume his murderous ways. The sole survivor of his last rampage, Rowan, manages to lure Jason into the cryogenic freezer, but before she can complete the process and escape, she is mortally wounded and frozen in time along with Jason. That seems okay, right? Well, flash forward over 400 years to 2455. The place is Old Earth, now a contaminated planet abandoned for centuries, a world of violent storms, toxic land masses, and poisoned seas. Yet humans have returned to the deadly place they once fled, not to live, but to research the artifacts of the lost civilizations that caused this enormous environmental disaster. Little does the most recent landing party of interplanetary explorers realize the fate that awaits them when they stumble upon an unusual find from a primitive technological age. They bring the two cryogenically frozen humans onto their spaceship for further research, and you can imagine the two are unfrozen, and Jason returns to his old ways. Finally, in 2003, we saw the blending of franchises in Freddy vs. Jason. In this one, Freddy employs Jason to go on a killing spree to help the Elm Street kids remember who Freddy is. But of course, Jason is a killing machine, and Freddy becomes jealous of Jason's body count, so the two face off. If you haven't seen it, it's intended to make you laugh, and it's very tongue-in-cheek. They even threw in a character that's modeled after Jay from Kevin Smith's films to provide comedy. The film brought in over $82 million at the box office and rentals at $3.8 million. So now that we've covered the different films, let's talk about motivation. Because to me, the most interesting thing about a slasher film, and particularly a mass murderer like Jason Voorhees, is to look at why they do this. I guess it's the psychology student in me, but I hope you find it interesting. Ironically, there's really not all that much out there about motivation. As it turns out, Jason really didn't have any motivation. And depending on the film, his motivations did change a little bit. I always thought that Jason was motivated by pure revenge because a counselor killed his mother. And in part two, you see his retaining of his sort of mummified mother and you think that he's sort of a Norman Bates kind of guy where he is just out for revenge. But it is slightly different. In his original appearance, Jason was scripted as a mentally disabled young boy. Since Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees has been depicted as a nonverbal, indestructible, machete-wielding mass murderer. With the exception of flashbacks of Jason drowning as a child, and a brief scene in Jason Goes to Hell where his spirit is possessing another body, the character is never spoken in any of the sequels to the original Friday the 13th. Online magazine Salon's Andrew O'Hare describes Jason as silent, expressionless, blank slate. 
When discussing Jason psychologically, Sean S. Cunningham stated, He doesn't have any personality. He's like a great white shark. You can't really defeat him. All you can hope for is to survive. Since Friday the 13th, Part 6, Jason Lives, Jason has been a virtually indestructible being. Tom McLaughlin, the film's director, felt it was silly that Jason had previously just been another guy in a mask, who would kill people left and right, would get beaten up and knocked down by the heroine at the end. McLaughlin wanted Jason to be more of a formidable, unstoppable monster. Many have given suggestions as Jason's motivation for killing. Ken Kurzinger refers to Jason as a psychotic mama's boy gone horribly awry, very resilient. You can't kill him, but he feels pain, just not like everyone else. Kurzinger goes on to say Jason is a psycho savant and believes his actions are based on pleasing his mother and not anything personal. Andrew O'Hare has stated, Coursing hormones act, of course, as smelling salts to prudish Jason, the ever-villigent enforcer of William Bennett-style values. Whatever his motivations, Kane Hodder believes there is a limit to what he will do. According to Hodder, Jason might violently murder any person he comes across, but when Jason takes Manhattan called for Hodder to kick the lead character's dog, Hodder refused. When it comes to hurting a dog, Hodder believes Jason would not act with disregard. In an early draft of Freddy vs. Jason, it was decided that one of the villains needed a redeemable factor. Ronald D. Moore, co-writer of the first draft, explained that Jason was the easiest to make redeemable because no one had ventured into the psychology surrounding the character prior. Moore saw the character as a blank slate and felt he was a character the audience could really root for. Another draft, penned by Mark Protozovich, followed Moore's idea of Jason's having a redeemable quality. In the draft, Jason protects a student named Rachel Daniels and her unborn child. Protozovich explained, it gets into the whole idea of there being two kinds of monsters. Freddy is a figure of actual pure evil. Jason is more a figure of vengeance who punishes people he doesn't feel deserve to live. Ultimately, the two of them clash and Jason becomes an honorable monster. Writers Damian Shannon and Mark Swift, who wrote the final draft of the film, disagreed about making Jason a hero. Although they drew comparisons between the fact that Freddy was a victimizer and Jason was a victim, they stated, we did not want to make Jason any less scary. He's still a brutal killer. We never wanted to put him into a situation where Jason is a hero. They're both villains to be equally feared. Brenna O'Brien, co-founder of FridayThe13thFilms.com, saw the characters having sympathetic qualities. She stated, Jason was a deformed child who almost drowned and then spent the rest of his childhood growing up alone in the woods. He saw his mother get murdered by a camp counselor in the first Friday the 13th, and so now he exacts his revenge on anyone who returns to Camp Crystal Lake. Teenage fans can identify with a sense of rejection and isolation, which you can't really get from other killers like Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers. A study was conducted by California State University's Media Psychology Lab on the psychological appeal of movie monsters, surveyed 1,166 people nationwide in the U.S., with ages ranging from 16 to 91. It was published in the Journal of Media Psychology. Many of the characteristics associated with Jason Voorhees were appealing to the participants. In the survey, Jason was considered to be an unstoppable killing machine. Participants were impressed by the cornucopic fears of slicing and dicing a seemingly endless number of adolescents and the occasional adult. Out of the 10 monsters used in the survey, which included vampires, Freddy Krueger, Godzilla, Chucky, Hannibal Lecter, and the alien, 
Jason scored the highest in all categories involving killing variables. Further characteristics that appealed to the participants included Jason's immortality, his apparent enjoyment of killing, and his superhuman strength. So how does Jason compare to other killers like him? Cameron James of the New York Times wrote in her article, The High Art of Horror Films Can Cut Deep Into the Psyche, on May 27, 1990. Even a touch of psychology can elevate an ordinary horror film, which is why the Nightmare on Elm Street series, with a villain who invades people's dreams, is so much more effective than Friday the 13th, in which a hockey-masked killer with at least eight lives chops up teenagers. Both series are aimed at a teenage audience and are careful to keep expenses and the level of sophistication low. But Nightmare on Elm Street taps into the classic fear of lack of control. We can't manage our dreams, and as dozens of Elm Street characters have proved, we can't stay safely awake forever. I completely agree. To me, Freddy Krueger has always been my favorite when compared to Jason Voorhees and Michael Myers. Of course, it depends on my mood. I am a Gemini, after all. The main reason is that the writers have given Freddy a personality, which morphed a lot throughout the franchise. He interacts with his intended victims and always seems larger than life. It is fairly easy to avoid Jason. However, Freddy comes to his victims in their dreams. I've spent a lot of time in the woods and have even worked a couple summers as a camp counselor. The woods can have eerie silences and can spook you a little. I guess I have a far too active imagination. To me, Friday the 13th films tend to be scarier than Nightmare on Elm Street films, however, probably due to the creepy music and the fact that Jason is a quiet stalker type. The same can be said for Michael Myers, but we'll discuss Michael in depth in a future episode. So that's it for our main topic. Now for something a little different. The song of the night tonight is the horror movie song by Ben Minote. It's brought to you by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check them out at myspace.com slash benmenotemusic.com. Enjoy. Dark restless nights are all the same. Old nightmares come back. To haunt you again And even when there's nothing left to fear It just hits you like a hurricane And it reels you in Well, I've always been Takes the road less traveled upon And the sky's been murky and gray all day And it looks like that's the way it's gonna stay Queen 
Now if I could only That's it for this July edition of Darkgate Horror Podcast. It looks like our next episode will look at films which feature creepy children. I have quite a few great ideas for upcoming podcasts, and I have several in the works right now, but I always look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening, and take care. Thank you for listening to Darkgate Horror Podcast. You can send me an email at darkgatehorror at gmail.com and visit my website at darkgatehorror.blogspot.com. Thank you to Josh Woodward for the use of his song, I Want to Destroy Something Beautiful, which is the opening and closing music. His website is joshwoodward.com. Music played on this podcast is from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.